So thank you all for joining us again in Beyond the Talk. Uh, today, we have Dr. Munger with us. Dr. Munger is the director of the Center for Smell and Taste and a professor and vice chair of pharmacology and therapeutics at UF. And we're really excited to learn about our own senses from him. So thanks so thanks. much for being with us. <laughs> thanks a lot for having me. I don't know how much I can tell you about your, your own senses, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> So first, can you tell us about uh, how you got interested in the field and where you got to where you are? Sure. Um, like a lot of people in science, um, I had, you know, we can go back to second grade when I wanted to be a moon geologist, but that, <laughs> that didn't work out. Um, no, I, I've always been interested in science. And I, in my undergraduate uh, time was at the University of Virginia, I was interested in getting into a laboratory to do some research. And I was taking a, a class from one professor, liked working with him. So I, um, back then there was a paper list of the different faculty in the department, biology department and the um, research they were doing. And uh, his research was listed as, uh, as focused on the reflexes in uh, mantis shrimp, which have a very fast snapping reflex. And I said, I had an interest in rebiology. So I thought, oh, that's, that sounds good. I went to talk to him in his lab. And he said, well, you're welcome to work with me, but we're not working on that now. We're actually studying the sense of smell in crayfish. So, okay. So I did that. And um, I found very quickly that I really enjoyed studying smell. And even though there was a very uh, simple project we were working on, I like the idea of trying to understand how the brain is going to make sense of a very complex sensory environment. So I went ahead and I uh, stayed with that and I stayed in the marine aspects of it. And I actually came, did my PhD in Department of Neuroscience at University of Florida. And I actually did the research though at the Whitney Laboratory. And I don't know if you're aware of that or visited it. It's a marine laboratory out south of Crescent Beach, right next to Marine Land. So it's on this little barrier island, uh, right where St. John's and Flagler County meet. And it's been there for, I don't know, probably 40 some years at this point. And uh, it uses marine animals to study basic biological problems. And at that point, I was working on lobsters and their sense of smell because they use, if you ever seen a lobster in a tank at the grocery store, they have these little antennules on the, on the front of their face that they flick. And that's basically the equivalent of sniffing. And uh, so I was studying basically how the, the cells in that nose, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, in that antennal were responding to odors and turning it into a signal that the brain could decode. I went on from there to do postdoctoral work in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University. Um, switched over to mammalian models, which are a lot easier to uh, study in a molecular and genetic basis. I took a faculty position at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, also in Baltimore, was there for about 14 years. And in 2014, got recruited to come back down to Florida to uh, take over as director of the, the Center for Smell and Taste and to help with the uh, building of the Department of Pharmacology. And so I've been here since then. Oh, that's, that's really cool. That's like a great background. That's interesting. Um, so like over at the center of smell and taste, like what do you guys, what is the purpose of the center you would say, or what kind of projects or research are you currently doing right now? 
Yeah, I, I like to describe the Center for Smell and Taste as sort of the catalyst and the glue of smell and taste research on campus. Okay. So we're what you would call a virtual center. We're organized under the Office of Research. So we don't reside in a particular college. Uh, I'm in the College of Medicine, but we have faculty in eight different colleges across campus, not only in Gainesville, but even at the Citrus Research Center down at Lake Alfred. So we have people in agriculture and IFAS, uh, entomology, biology, chemistry, and arts and sciences, and engineering, um, and in different um, uh, departments, College of Medicine, College of Pharmacy. So we really bring together a huge number of people who are working at everything from how you might uh, make a more flavorful fruit or how you perceive those flavors to people who are trying to develop new treatments for uh, smell loss, anosmia, and, and everything in between. And um, making sensors to detect odors that might be tell you a crop is ripe or that uh, that um, or crop is going bad and spoiling uh, or medical uh, types of uh, sensors that might tell you that someone has cancer or COVID or whatever. Those are potential applications that that some of our member scientists are doing. So That's super arranging... interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. We're we're very broad. We're very broad, and so we don't. It's not a, a a single type of research. My own research has, for most of the time, focused on understanding the real um, molecular and cellular building blocks of of odor and taste detection. And, but is is uh, with COVID coming around, has has uh, started to branch out a bit more to try to address that problem as well. Yeah, no, that's that's all really relevant, and I think it's really interesting that your research is in a field that everyone has some familiarity with. You know, it's it's not like particle physics or nanomaterials where people aren't at all accustomed to what you're talking about. Everyone or most people can can smell and taste at least. Yeah, it's it. it's you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, we don't I don't have to try to explain some uh, string theory equation or, or, or something like that. We all experience it. But the flip side of it is we also all take it for granted, or most of us do. I mean, unless you're really, you know, you're a chef or, or a perfumer or somebody who's really day-to-day -day working with your sense of smell and your sense of taste in a uh, very, very real way, a lot of times people don't pay attention to it until they lose it, and in which case what they've lost becomes really apparent and uh, can be quite life-altering. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the biggest things that you've learned in becoming an expert on smell and taste then? Oh, um, that, that's, a, that's a nice broad question. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> well, I, I would say from our, our um, own research and, and others, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. So for one thing, let's think about taste. So you, everybody finds sugar to be sweet tasting, you perceive it as sweet and you and, um, and people will also uh, perceive a number of synthetic sweeteners like uh, saccharin, which is in sweet and low, aspartame and equal sucralose that's in Splenda, uh, for some of their trade names, also will perceive those as tasting sweet. They might also taste a little bitter to some people, but they, but they fundamentally taste sweet. And what we found, the field has found, and we've worked on this um, over the years, is the reason that that is the case is because there is a single receptor, a single protein 
on cells in your taste buds in your tongue that recognizes everything that is sweet. And so all of these different chemicals, they look different, they're different sizes. I mean, there are, there are large proteins that are found in these weird berries in uh, tropical forests and in Africa and South, uh, Southeast Asia that uh, taste sweet as well. All of these molecularly distinct, chemically distinct compounds all taste sweet because they all basically work on the same button on your tongue. And that is pretty remarkable and shows the importance of that sense for detecting compounds that um, you know, we really evolved to, to detect these as carbohydrates because they're nutrients they are important for energy. And so it's real, sweetness is something that's really important uh, for us to detect and all humans can detect uh, sweet, what we perceive as sweet tasting compounds. But if you were to trick the system, and this has been done in mice where you can genetically engineer the animal and actually put a bitter a receptor that normally responds to bitter compounds in the cells that normally have the sweet receptor in it, you can actually make a mouse like and find sweet, that bitter tasting compound. So it really comes down to the receptor figures out what you can respond to, what compounds might taste sweet to you. And the way it's wired to the brain is what determines what it means to you, whether it means sweetness or bitterness or saltiness. So that, that's been a, over the last uh, couple of decades, that's been a pretty remarkable thing. And you can imagine that's not only important for understanding how the brain makes sense of foods we're going to eat and, and um, whether we might like something or not, but it has implications for nutrition and diet. It has implications for designing uh, foods and drinks in a way that will be more palatable or less palatable. And this is, uh, it's true for um, helping even design medications. A lot of medications for kids have, have sweeteners added to make them more palatable. And understanding how that, that sweet taste works has, has been really instrumental for helping us move forward in those, in those types of areas. Yeah, that's interesting because when you think about like medicine and biology in general, it's kind of like it's always broken down to like receptor substrate or like concentration gradient or something really black and white. So it's it's really weird or I guess interesting how some people perceive taste differently then. If it's like all the types of same types of receptors, like how does that come into play? Like how do some people find like, for example, cilantro tasting like soap or other people can find something yeah. that is more sour than others? Like how does that work? So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So, so in ca some cases, so for, I mentioned saccharin. So I don't know if you've, you know, people don't use saccharin as much as they used to. Uh, you know, tab is, is going to go out of, uh, offline pretty soon as a, as a, a soft drink. Um, but there's a group of people that find saccharin to be fairly bitter. And there's a group of people who really don't, they only taste the sweetness. So everybody tastes the sweetness, but some people also find it to be really off-puttingly bitter and don't like it. Well, it turns out, so you have that one receptor for the sweet tasting compounds, you have about 25 different receptors for bitter tasting compounds. And we think of a lot of bitter tasting compounds that are naturally occurring are toxic, strychnine, cyanide, these are things you don't want to don't want to ingest, and so bitterness may be telling you to just spit it out. Um, not exclusively true, but mostly so. The 
a subset of those uh, receptors, and you want to have a wide array of receptors to potentially catch all those toxins, um, a subset of those receptors responds to saccharin, but only for people who have specific genetic variants. So depending on the gene sequence for you, for two of those bitter taste receptors, I could tell you whether you're going to be find saccharin to be bitter or not. So there's genetic differences in, particularly in bitter taste are, are huge. There's a group of people that um, can respond to a class of compounds known as thiourea compounds. Um, they're prevalent in brassica vegetables like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and such. Uh, there, there's a group of people who are more sensitive to uh, those, a group that are sort of medium sensitive and a group that can't taste them at all. There's a, you put it, you could put straight compounds in their mouth and they would not find them bitter at all. And that's because of genetic differences in one particular bitter taste receptor. But you mentioned cilantro, which is also a very clear genetic difference. The people who perceive cilantro as tasting soapy are actually different in their ability to smell a key compound that is part of the aroma of cilantro. And this gets to a really important point that a lot of people um, sort of confuse when they say they're tasting something. When you're eating something or you're smelling something, I mean, sorry, or drinking something, you're tasting it, but that's sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami taste. Or, plus you are also smelling it. You're smelling it by something we call retronasal olfaction. Basically, odors go from your mouth where the food is being chewed or the drink is being swallowed, goes up through the back of your throat and into your nose and interacts with the smell receptors that are up there. So it goes from the back. From the, back. the same process that happens, you're drinking milk and someone tells you a joke and it comes out your nose. That's the, the connection, that physical connection there. So your brain puts together the smell and the taste to give you the flavor. So if you're lacking the ability because of a genetic difference in one of your odor receptors to smell that, that cilantro compound the same way, then all of a sudden you're only seeing a subset of, you're only recognizing a subset of all of these smell and taste chemicals that are in that cilantro. And so it becomes different and the soapiness sort of rises to the fore. I don't have that particular gene variant. So cilantro, I like cilantro. I like the grassiness of it. But if I really think hard about it, I can detect that soapiness that sort of is an undernote to me. But if someone's missing that grassy smell, they will really, they will really pick it up. I, there's a common, uh, uh, it's a pig pheromone actually called uh, androstenone that people might encounter if they get freshly uh, butchered meat from pigs that have not been uh, adult uh, hogs that have not been castrated so that the hormone taints, I mean, it's really a sex pheromone, it taints the meat and gives it this bad smell. And so there are a group of people who can smell it very dramatically. Um, I, it, you can put a bucket in front of me, I can't smell it at all. And that's also a very common, common difference. So yes, our genetic differences make a huge impact on how we perceive our world. Just like someone who is has a mutation in one of their cone photoreceptor genes and they can't detect efficiently red or green light, 
they are, I mean, the light's still there, but they're just missing out on the ability to detect it in the same way. So the world, they're getting a little bit different perception of the world. So is that to say that people who don't like cilantro are just colorblind in their noses? <laughs> um, yeah, there, there are lots of, we call them specific anosmias. They are, they are the inability to smell a particular chemical or group of chemicals, as opposed to general anosmia, which means you can't smell at all, which is more of a, a, a clinically relevant condition. So uh, a few years ago, this got publicized a little bit, but people would call flavor tripping parties. I didn't name them. Uh, but basically, I, I mentioned before that there are a number of small fruits and berries found in some tropical forests that have, contain proteins that are really potently sweet, thousands of times sweeter than sucrose on, on a molar basis. Um, and the thought is that the, these are small little fruits and, um, and monkeys will eat them and then spread the seeds around, of course. And the thought is, is that these small little fruits, if they can make a, cup, a little bit of protein that is highly sweet, that's a lot energetically much less effort than making tons and tons of, of sugar, like a, an orange wood or an apple wood or something else. Um, but there's a, there's a weird variant. There are a couple of different fruits and one of them, uh, the miracle fruit is, um, which is actually also cultivated in South Florida as a, as a cash crop. Um, the, uh, the miracle fruit is a little, little red berry. You can buy it on the internet, uh, usually as little uh, freeze dried pellets. And if you eat it, it won't really taste like much of anything. Sometimes it has some sweetness to it, but the protein in it called miraculin, originally named from the miracle fruit, doesn't have a sweetness at neutral pH. But what it does is it binds to that sweet taste receptor and sort of locks it in place in its off position. So there's no sweetness happening there. However, in the presence of acid, it changes its shape and activates the receptor and you get this perception of sweetness and it will actually linger for quite a long time. So if you were to eat a miracle fruit and then a few minutes later suck it on, on a lemon, it'll taste like lemon candy. You could drink a bottle of uh, vinegar and it would taste really good and you would re really regret it later. But um, the these um, it's, it's an interesting thing that it has this pH dependent activation. So it is a sweetener that is only sweet in acidic conditions. And why that matters for making monkeys more likely to, maybe they have more acidic saliva, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a neat thing. There are a lot of these little weird tastes. There's something called sweet water taste. So if you eat artichoke, it has a uh, compound in it that um, doesn't have a particular taste, but it does interact again with the sweet taste receptor. But it, when you want, but it locks the sweet taste receptor in its off position. When you wash it away, all the receptors sort of spring back into their on position at the same time. So the water tastes really sweet, but it's not because the compound's there, it's actually because it's been removed. It's like, you know, pulling the blindfold off of you and all of a sudden there's light. It's, um, it's, yeah, so there, there, there are all sorts of strange compounds out, out there in, in things we eat or encounter that, that uh, sometimes trick your, your system into 
having something that isn't or perceiving something that isn't actually there. Yeah. I've had a package of them for like a year and we have one left because, you know, it's fun to take them with other people and then just try a bunch of random foods, but you never want to just take it alone before eating dinner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't do it before an expensive dinner. First time I tried it, I was at a meeting in Japan. And um, so taste and smell meetings in Japan get a lot of, a lot of research is done by companies that make beer. So Kieran and Suntory and so, so they were sponsoring the poster sessions at the meeting. I can tell you that a miracle fruit before Japanese beers, that's not a, a, a combination I would recommend. It just it tastes like really, really sweet beer. It was awful. So yeah. It's not endorsed formally by this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to shift that a little bit to talk about the the tasting side of this, because I know that a lot of us in school learned about the flavor zones on your tongue and how you know different parts of your tongue can taste different flavors. And I know that you've done some research related to this. Can you go ahead and debunk that myth for us or give us some extra context? Yeah, we, we actually didn't didn't do any research, but did do sort of a summary uh, paper to describe it. And you're right, it is it is completely BS, and it's um, it it basically came from an initial study uh, that was done back in about 1901, I think, um, from a German physiologist who was measuring on in different areas of the tongue electrical responses to different tastes, and. What he found was then, so you have taste buds on the front third of your tongue. You have taste buds back on the, the sides for the back. And then you have taste buds way in the back. And then you also have taste buds on your soft palate in an area called the Geschmacksstreifen, the taste strip. Um, you also have some in your throat, but, the, but those are the, those four main areas. And so he measured the three different areas in the tongue and found slight differences in the responses to typical tastes stimuli like uh, uh, you know, sodium chloride or sucrose, so for salt and for sweet. Uh, I can't remember if you citric acid or another acid for sour, um, perhaps quinine for bitter. Um, but anyway, that he found slight differences in the intensity, but all areas responded to all of them. Someone came along a little bit later and misinterpreted that, basically misread the, the graphs that this first uh, scientist had uh, put forth and basically concluded that there were certain areas that were sweet specific and certain areas that are salt specific. And that made it into nice little cartoon forms you probably all saw in elementary school books. And it's persisted for 100 100 and so years and it's hard to get rid of, but yeah, it's completely wrong. So I know- really wild. So there's, you said that there's, so there's a bunch of taste receptors in the mouth in the throat area some of your research was based on the extra oral now these aren't are these Mm -hmm. receptors like you can't obviously taste but can you sense anything because there's another myth i want you to debunk in a second which has been going viral (laughs) are you on tiktok dr munger i am not okay lucky lucky. (laughs) there's this trend that's been going around or i think it passed by now it was debunked so a paper was published that showed that um, receptors in testicles basically control, taste receptors control fertility and things like that. And one of the sentences in that was Daily Mail like expanded on it. And they said that although like a far place from the mouth, receptors on the testicle can detect 
the flavor of umami. That led people <laughs> to, you know, getting, getting. I don't want to know where it led people. <laughs> yeah, it involved soy sauce. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what, um, I mean, what are, what are the extra oral receptors doing? Like, what's the basis of so, that? Yeah, so, so, so these receptors, so the, the receptors for sweet tasting compounds and umami tasting compounds, which is basically glutamate, amino acid, um, the savory taste, those um, fall into a group of, of receptor proteins we call the type one taste receptors or T1Rs. The bitter receptors fall into the type two taste receptor, T2Rs. They're slightly different in their structure. They, um, but part of the reason they're called taste receptors and they are taste receptors in the mouth, they function to link the detection of chemicals in your mouth to the perception of taste through the way they're wired to the brain. But they were discovered there first, they were called taste receptors first, but if they've been discovered in the intestine or in the pancreas or in the brain or in the testicles, they would have been called something completely different, not based on the idea of their taste. But it turns out that both the T1Rs and the T2Rs are expressed in a variety of other tissues. In the gut, they, the T1Rs that are responsive to sweet seem to be really important for how the gut senses sugars that you've ingested to help to prepare the body to release insulin and, um, and regulate blood glucose before it's absorbed. So it seems to, so they are doing that, but you're not tasting anything in the gut because the way the gut is wired to the brain, it doesn't go to the taste areas of the brain. So you don't have a perception of tasting anything. You have a chemical sensing apparatus in your gut that uses those same receptors, but, but it's not taste. Um, we've studied the T2Rs in the thyroid, which is a gland in the neck that regulates all sorts of aspects of metabolism. And we think it helps to, um, to regulate the production of thyroid hormone, but the thyroid is not tasting bitter compounds. It may be responding to them, but it's not tasting. So it, the testicles, um, particularly spermato uh, spermatozoa are interesting in that they often express a lot of different genes that they may or may not use. So whether this particular receptor, uh, which would be uh, a T1R1, uh, if it was the mommy one, whether that particular receptor is doing that, it may be that it's sensing amino acids and it's playing a role in that, which is something a lot of cells need to do. And it just has repurposed that same receptor that's been used as taste, but it's not connected to the brain in a way that is used. But there's actually some pretty good evidence that, that sperm use uh, receptors that are odor receptors that are expressed there that respond to compounds and actually help sperm chemotaxis, help them orient and migrate towards uh, a chemical and using odor receptors for that. So, so a lot of times biology just reuses the same machinery in a slightly different way, but because we often name them based on where we first found them, it sometimes implies a function in these other tissues that really isn't there. I think that brings up a really cool point, which is that there's a, there's a difference between detecting compounds with your mouth and those and tasting and smelling them. Yes. And it seems like there's a really clear connection between taste and smell and 
you know, the, the neural pathways to understanding this. So can you talk a little bit about how we form those neural connections to understand taste and smell? And also how do we see how that impacts things like our memories of, you know, memories being triggered by, by things like taste and smell? Yeah, I mean, and some of this is going to be a little bit of speculation because there's a lot we don't know about how those, those um, things link up. But yeah, so it, if we talk about smell, in that case, we have sensory nerve cells in our nose that are sticking their, the, the sensors, the receptors, and what we call the dendrites, the, the um, sensory part of those nerve cells. They're actually sticking out of the epithelium in your nose through some mucus and where they can be exposed to odors that are coming in through the air as you sniff them or as they come back from the back of the uh, back of the throat while you're eating. Those odors will activate those receptors, set off a biochemical cascade within the cell that causes an electrical change that then gets sent down that nerve to the brain. And so it's, a, it's that same cell that detects the odors in your nasal cavity, sends a process called naxon through the skull and where it terminates in a part of the brain called the olfactory bulb. And then from there, it connects to another neuron and then that goes to cortical areas that start to make sense of the odor, that start to allow for learning about the odor. Um, a lot of, when we're talking about memory, what you're really talking about is the consequences of learning where you've associated a, an odor with a particular object. You know, how do you, how do you know, you aren't born knowing what pizza smells like. You have to learn that you get that particular group of odors while the piece of pizza is in front of you. And then that happens again. And you can say, oh, I remember what that smell should be like and, and, and so forth. Um, and one reason why it is thought that odors may be particularly good at helping you to recall memories is that the areas of the brain that process odor information that uh, deal with uh, communicating aspects of odor identity or odor concentration or what we call hedonics, so, uh, the positive or negative effective aspects of odor. You know, why you might like the smell of a flower but hate the smell of a rotting fish. Um, those, those types of processes are happening in areas of the brain that are very closely associated with areas that are involved in memory formation. And so it's thought that uh, odors may be efficient at helping you to recall memories or be linked to memories because of that close physical um, and uh, circuitry relationship. Smell is a little different. I mean, uh, sorry, taste is a little different because uh, taste, these cells that detect tastes in your tongue, they're collected in groupings called taste buds. And the bumps on your tongues are not the taste buds. Those are called taste papilla. And within the papilla are the little onion-shaped collections of like 50 to 100 cells in each one that contain the cells that are sensitive to different taste compounds. Those cells are restricted to the taste buds but they interact with nerve cells that will carry information back to your brainstem, uh, very closely uh, to areas of the brainstem that are involved in regulating nausea, for example. So you can, and also they're sensing internal chemical things like from the gut. 
So that, that taste information goes there before it goes up into higher centers of the brain uh, in, and eventually to cortical areas where you start to be able to, again, differentiate sweet from salty, from bitter, from sour, from umami, but also make choices about what we'd say appetitive tastes versus aversive. Sweet taste tells you, oh yeah, this is something you like, you, um, uh, you should uh, eat it. Bitter taste is generally going to, if you have pure bitter compounds, you're not going to like it. Where I think taste is particularly um, distinct from smell is that those are innate. You know, you look at babies and you put sugar on their tongue and they're going to smile and smack their lips and like it. you put something bitter in their mouth and they're going to make a face and, and, and really dislike, dislike it. But that being said, you can learn to like things that you, that are innately aversive. For example, um, you know, coffee is bitter on its own and particularly dark roasted coffee, espressos and stuff are very, very popular. Those have a lot of bitter tasting compounds in them, but people like that. And it's not because it's not bitter, it's because perhaps you like the caffeine buzz that you get from it. Perhaps you like the social aspect that you always go in the morning to get coffee with your friend and you have a conversation, or at least you used to before we had to separate. Um, you, or you, um, you also have, you know, I mentioned how a lot of bitter compounds might be toxic. You go to the, the uh, go to the coffee shop and they're not a bunch of dead people laying around, which gives you a clue that perhaps these aren't full of poison. The, these are all um, things, you, uh, factors you use to make a judgment that maybe in that case, bitterness is not bad. And there are actually good associations with bitterness. But if I took those bitter compounds out of the coffee and gave it to you, where there was no coffee smell, no coffee cup, no anything, you would still dislike those same compounds. So there is a, a real learning aspect to it. So over time, like people will start to develop like smells that can be passed down like evolutionary, like some, like obviously there's new smells nowadays and there were like millions of years ago, right? Especially with like more pollutants in the air, like more CO2 in the air and things like that. So are the things that we're smelling in our day-to-day -day lives kind of impacting how people in the future are gonna perceive smells as dangerous or harmful? I mean, there, there certainly can be learning that we can pass down from our knowledge, but genetically, no, we don't think that's the case for, for smells. And part of that is the way that the sense of smell is set up. Um, so as opposed to the sense of taste, where we talked about the receptors, the sensors for those a little bit, that there's a limited number uh, of them. And while the, um, and they really are tuned to a, to a restricted number of compounds in smell. So a Humans, we have about 400 distinct odor receptors in our nose. Talked about a rat, about a 1,500. So, and each of those receptors can generally will respond to more than one odor compound. And every odor compound that you may encounter can generally activate more than one of those different distinct receptors. And this is something that in the field we call combinatorial coding, which is basically you're creating an overlapping array of different sensors that are activated in a 
pattern that may be unique for each compound. The advantage of that is, um, is well, one advantage of that is that you don't necessarily ever have to have experienced that odor compound before in order to be able to detect it because there is such a um, flexibility in the receptive ability of the receptors and there's such a broad overlapping array that is responsive that the chances of at least one of them responding to some unknown previously unencountered um, compound is pretty high. So we have a basically have a in the nose we have a system that is set up to not only detect things we have experienced before and relate it to our experiences, our memories are uh, related to other uh, sensory inputs that we're getting, um, but also is set up very nicely to allow us to experience novel odors and react to them in a, in a meaningful way. So I have a related question on this, and I was talking to Rakan about this before the podcast. Um, and basically, we, we came to the question of, can you remember smell in the same way that we can remember images? So, you know, if you, if you tell me to close my eyes and think about what a rose looks like, I can picture it in my head and tell you exactly what it looks like. And if you ask me to close my nose and tell you what a rose smells like, can I, can I actually think about that smell in the same way that I can think about the images there? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question, and it's one that people have thought about. It's a little outside my um, expertise, so I'll tell you the, the general thought is that people are not as good at that sort of um, conceptualizing an odor in the absence of a stimulus. Um, that it is harder to do than to 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 sit there and um, and actually uh, think about an image. But there's also our uh, neural differences in people, and I wish I could remember the term, but the basically the ability to close your eyes and visualize something or do that is um, uh, can vary between people. And my wife and I have a conversation about this because she talks about when she reads a book, she is ba it's basically like watching a movie of imagining everything, seeing, really seeing everything that is happening there. Doesn't happen for me at all. It's, and if I close my eyes and try to visualize a rose, I really can't do it. Um, so, that, so there's also that difference in ability. So with odors, the question is, has that been decoupled in studies people have done where you really distinguish people who can't, who are good at, at bringing back a mentally a sound or, or, or a visual object or something, are they also doing it? Um, with smells. There's also a question about how, um, about the language of being able to really articulate what a smell is and people tend to have a harder time doing that. Although there's a, there certainly seems to be a cultural difference in that there are certain cultures that have much more, a much richer language smell than, than we might in the US. That's cool. We might have to bring on a linguistics professor for another episode. But. Yeah, like Ethan, Perfect. one of our speakers from last year was a linguistics professor. But okay, so to tie, I guess everything always has to come back to COVID. 
But I have a quick question. So I'm, I'm, I, mean, I think yeah, I know sure. where you're, where this is going, but where does the loss of taste and smell come from? Or can it, can that be answered briefly? Or is that just like a big mechanism that has to do with the, the senses? So, well, it, I, I mean, we, it can be fairly brief because the, the fact of the matter is we don't know for sure. Okay. But so one thing we've known for a long time is that viruses can cause smell loss. Common cold, influenza virus, those that, that can do it. There are a certain number of people who will lose their sense of smell either temporarily or permanently after having a simple upper respiratory infection. So the fact that this is happening in people, so many people with COVID-19, just the very fact that it's happening is not surprising. It's the prevalence that has been really surprising. There is some evidence because of people who have worked on these uh, types of coronaviruses before and understand some of the molecular mechanisms that are needed to allow those viruses to enter cells and infect those cells and, and replicate. We know some of the key molecular signatures of the sensory cells of the of the of the cells in the human body that um, that have to to be in place in order to allow that to happen efficiently. In the nose, the sensory neurons, the the nerve cells that actually detect the odors, don't have those key receptors. Uh, ACE two is one of one of the proteins. Doesn't it? So it doesn't look like those cells are directly affected but the supporting cells that surround them, that create the environment in which they can function and probably regulate um, all sorts of key aspects of, of, their, of the tissue's health, those are chock full of the receptors for the, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so what we are hypothesizing from there is that those supporting cells are getting infected and that it is then causing either a local inflammatory response changes in ionic gradients or other types of things that are disrupting the function of the tissue indirectly there instead of uh, affecting the sensory cells themselves. I do think if, you, if you're thinking about COVID-related smell loss is to think about smell loss and taste loss um, uh, more broadly. This is something that affects even before COVID happened, this is something that was already affecting millions and millions of people in the U.S. alone. And it's because of viruses, head trauma, um, uh, neurodegenerative disease, chronic sinusitis, a chronic inflammatory uh, disease in the nose and, and other causes. And this and for a lot of the um, medical field has for many years treated it as you know, it's an unfortunate annoyance for the patient, but you know, nothing you can do, you have to live with it. Um, unfortunately, we still don't have much in the way of treatment options, but I think there's a much greater recognition now that these smell and taste disorders, whether it's the loss of smell or the distortion of smell or phantom smells or tastes that come along are hugely impactful for people. They disrupt their ability to, to appreciate food and so affect their diet. They affect their social interactions in, in part because you know, so much we do is over a meal or, or, or a drink or, or whatnot. And it becomes very isolating for them. Plus there's the safety issues of not being able to easily detect spoiled food or fire or a gas leak or things like that. So these over the last 
you know, five to 10 years has been a bit of a greater appreciation of the real major impact that that smell and taste disorders have for people and a greater effort at trying to uh, provide clinical care and support, which is something we're doing at the, we have now a UF Health Smell Disorders Program, at, which is a partnership between the Center for Smell and Taste and, and the otolaryngology department in at UF Health. Uh, to to help provide a, a clinic and, and opportunities for those patients and help to um, also develop uh, research studies that can lead to treatments. And then we also have basic research going on gene therapy, stem cell therapy, and these types of approaches to try to, to treat these disorders, although it's going to be a while before we're there. Yeah, I think that's a great point to bring up. One of the things I was going to mention is that I have multiple friends who have had COVID-19 and lost their sense of smell and haven't regained it for weeks or months after. And I'm sure that as somebody who's dedicated your life to studying taste and smell, that would be really impactful for your research and also your everyday life likely. Can you tell us about how becoming an expert in your senses has affected your relationship to those senses? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, becoming an expert ha has affected it someone. I, I certainly do think about it more than uh, smell and taste than, uh, than the average person probably does. But I, but I actually think the, um, what has affected me more as something that's happened since I got back down here to the University of Florida and we started this clinical program, we've also been holding um, uh, uh, small conferences specifically for patients, interacting with these patients, these individuals who are directly affected about them and understanding sort of how hard it is for them to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis has really emphasized how important it is. We, we still need to do the fundamental research that, to understand how these systems work and how they stop working when they're disrupted. But we also need to redouble our efforts in the clinical research that tries to take that knowledge and turn it into uh, particular treatments or, or other types of therapies that, that can help to alleviate it. So I would, I would say for me, it's been as someone who really came from, you know, marine biology background, lobster smell, I mean, that was as basic as you can get, because there's, I mean, there's no anosmic lobsters, or there, there may be, but they're not, they're not uh, ones we see. To, to understanding that that clinical impact has been has been uh, probably the biggest biggest change for me. Yeah, well, we've certainly enjoyed learning about it today. Uh, Rakan, do you have any more questions for Dr. Munger while we have him? No, I mean, just thank you for your time. I guess putting it into perspective, I mean, when, when we knew you were going to be on our episode, trying to come up with a bunch of questions and get into the nitty gritty of the research. And I realized that a lot of the things that have to do with the senses are things that we're exposed to in our day-to-day -day lives. And that's what makes this research like so valuable and so important. So I thank you for your work on it. I mean, even watching like movies, I was watching Breaking Bad the other day and there's an episode where they're talking about how your smell is connected to your memories. I mean, there's that scene in Ratatouille where the food critic is, mm -hmm. he's getting that flashback after taking a bite out of, out of Ratatouille. So, I mean, it's in our, it's in our daily lives and it's everywhere. And that's why we're so glad that you're able to shed some more light on that for us. 
No, I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. And you, and you said you've got, you have asked some really insightful questions that, that hopefully uh, um, will get people thinking a little bit and certainly uh, really appreciate the time. And I'm sure that our listeners may have some more questions since there are so many cool questions that you can ask about these topics. So is there any way that anybody can get in touch with you if they want to learn more or even get involved with your lab? So, so the, um, the best way to do it is to the Center for Smell and Taste email address is ufcst at ufl.edu. And um, so those, those will all come to me and we'll get back to, to anybody who has questions. And we'll also be um, we're actually launching a, a brand new uh, study specifically related to um, understanding whether sudden smell loss and testing for it can be a warning uh, um, sign for COVID uh, for surveillance and, and uh, uh, screening purposes. Uh, that maybe uh, people will be able to participate on in, in the coming months too, if they're interested. And we're and we're always looking to to um, to start new studies and to have people, undergraduate, graduate level community who might want to what want to participate. We have a lot of labs that have a lot of exciting science going on. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure everyone really appreciated it. And to our listeners, remember that you can follow up with other cool professors like Dr. Munger and recommend them to gatorologies at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>